everyone. Welcome to Real World Parenting, tips and scripts for parents on roads less traveled. I'm Dr. Laura Anderson, a child and family psychologist, and I'm glad you're here. As you settle in to listen, let me reassure you that you are in the right place. If you're a loving parent looking for answers and encouragement, and maybe even a chuckle amidst hard things. If you're a loving parent who's raising a child on a journey different from your own as a child, and are seeking a compass as you navigate uncharted waters. This is the place for you if you get the theory of parenting advice you keep hearing, but for the love of chocolate and curry and all other nearly perfect things, that theory never quite works as planned with your actual children. Finally, you are in exactly the right place if you're a therapist or clinician who works with kids, teens, and families. My intention is that these episodes will deepen your work and change lives. So in this intro, I get two to three minutes here to boil down 30 years of work in my psychology offices and my experience as a mom in the trenches and let you know what I'll offer with this podcast. I almost called it lessons from our living rooms or couch conversations because my offerings will be things I have learned and keep learning from the vantage point of both my living room couch and my therapy office couch. The aim of this podcast is to offer hope, support, wisdom, and experience in community, to provide clinicians a window into what our recommendations actually mean for real families in real life. We will talk all things kid and teen related and shine a spotlight on families navigating identities related to race, gender, and adoption. We will explore common child and adolescent mental health and wellness related topics. The hope is to leave you with a greater understanding of your child's needs and a, you got this, energy. Episodes will also feature actual practical tips and answers to questions including, well, what do I say when? And what do I do when? So that you feel equipped to handle the day-to-day parenting puzzles we face. So pour yourself a cuppa or lace up some shoes or hide in your busy parent bathroom for a bit and join me for head and heart conversations about loving and living with children walking past less often traveled. Have I mentioned I'm glad you're here? I trust that you'll be glad. All right. Welcome, everyone. I am so glad that you are here with us this week, and I know you will be too. And I am thrilled to be sitting with Robin Goble. Welcome, Robin. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, and I love, I'm going to start right off with this great description I saw on your website. I love it that um, a student has described you as neuroscience with heart wrapped in glitter and fun. <laughs> so I think, Pretty accurate. Yeah, yeah. I think I've met a kindred spirit in that regard. And I love it. So today we're going to talk a little bit about um, like the brain body connection and how to freak out less when your kids' behaviors are big. In a yeah. nutshell, how does that sound? <laughs> that sounds fun. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about how, I know you've got a, a book coming out, you do coaching with, with professionals, you do work with parents. Just give listeners a little, like your bio blurb and then like what brings you to be here talking about this stuff now? I have been a therapist for, I mean, my, really my whole career. I left graduate school and wanted to work with these kids. I mean, really since high school, I wanted to work with these kids. I found the books of special educator um, Tori Hayden. She wrote, she writes these memoir books about her experience as a special um, special educator. 
and I found them when I was still in high school and she worked in the schools mostly with the kids that I work with now. And we didn't use the same language back then. You know, this was a very long time ago, but I remember reading them and just being like, this is what I want to do. Like, I want to work with these kids. And that is exactly what I've done. Um, and went, you know, undergrad, grad, and one big swoop and, you know, left at the, you know, brilliant age of 24. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and burst into the field. And again, I really have always just focused on, I want to work with these kids, these kids that nobody else will work with, that they're always referring out to other people, that nobody has any idea, you know, what's going on or how to help them. And very quickly, I realized I was the same person. I had no idea what was going on. I had no idea how to help them. Um, I didn't want to refer them out. I wanted to figure out what to do. And that led me to interpersonal neurobiology, relational neuroscience, um, which helped me feel like I could at least tolerate being in the room with these behaviors because I was starting to be able to make some sense of it. So I don't know, that's 15 years ago, probably. And I worked as just a, you know, kind of traditional one-on-one outpatient therapist. Mm -hmm. And um, saw kids in that setting in my own private practice, kids and families, until 2019, when my family and I moved from Austin, Texas, to Grand Rapids, Michigan. Mm -hmm. And, of course, had to close my practice. I thought I would reopen one, but then this pandemic thing happened. Yeah, that silly thing, yes. (laughs) And so I just kept doing what I was doing, like, to get me through the move, I was doing tons of teaching and speaking and training and doing online trainings and flying all over the place. And obviously I had to stop the flying, but I just really went all in on teaching and training and then capitalizing really on the, what the internet brings us and how we can create community online now. Yeah. So now that's what I do. I have an online community for parents of kids with vulnerable nervous systems and big baffling behaviors. <laughs> and I have a professional training program where I, because I know, I'm sure you hear the same thing. Parents are telling me every single day, there's nobody to help us. Yeah. I'm constantly being asked for referrals. Even if they have a good therapist, they still, you know, the schools are still uh, you know, a barrier or the, you know, like all these other adults in their lives still don't really understand what's happening with their kid. So I feel super passionately about training up as much, as many grownups, as many professionals and a wide variety really of, um, you know, things that they do to know our kids better. Yeah. And I think cause it can be, you know, otherwise it's such a lonely experience when, yeah, you know, when you're, when you're trying to make sense of big behaviors of dysregulation of, and I think another thing I saw in your literature somewhere where people say like, well, you know, all behavior makes sense or it's, it's mm-hmm. commuting, communicating something I'm like it doesn't actually make sense. A lot of the time mm-hmm. there may be a communicating yeah. piece, but it's not that logical and it isn't what we're uh-huh. taught. It isn't what a lot of 
um, assumptions are. It isn't what more yeah. Oh, yeah. typical, neurotypical kids who have not yeah. had attachment loss, kids who do not have, um, you know, beautiful neurodivergent ways of being in the world. There are like, and this is what I say to parents, for a lot of folks, you know, more traditional expectations and, and dangling a, a consequence out in front of a kid who goes, oh, I don't want that to happen. So I think I will do this instead. That does work for a subset of kids. Sure. <laughs> Imagine that. But, it I know. but what would that be like? I don't know. Um, but for a lot of kids and families, it's a setup. It's a, it's a setup. Yeah. And, and both the, the, in my experience, and I'm sure yours too, both the child and the parents feel like yeah. failures when oh, yeah. they're not, able to stop big baffling behaviors get what what does that even mean when you talk about big baffling behaviors what kinds of things are you talking about well just like you so i actually really believe all behavior makes sense yeah even the ones that don't, don't. so yes. like there's <laughs> you know like the families i work with are the ones who are like looking at this behavior and they're like what on earth like yeah why this doesn't make any sense to so things like lying in ways that seem to not make any sense like yeah. you know when you clearly know the truth and they're lying anyway or lying about something that doesn't even matter at all stealing things when you could have just asked for it you know sending really confusing relationship signals like lots of I want to be with you I want to be with you and then lots of actually I hate you get away from me um so these these behaviors that I do think are a little different than your neurotypical kid especially ones who haven't had any trauma yep and it, there's this I, that's just the word that I hear over and over and over again is baffling. And it wasn't really the word I'd planned to kind of like use as my shtick or whatever, but, <laughs> but it, people used it and they latched onto it. And it was these, this, this way to describe these behaviors that don't make any sense yet. It's not a pejorative word. And that's important to me. I wanted to use a new, I wanted a new, a neutral word. Um, and the reality is, is if we truly look at the neuroscience of behavior, they actually do make sense. sense. So at a glance, and that's an important piece. Yeah, that is very important. Approaching these kids, yeah, that's very important. I'm glad you clarified because yes, yeah. on the surface, it looks like the behaviors are really unexpected for the environment. Like totally, like Confusing. why? Like, yeah, what? why did that happen? Now? Like that is such a big response to such a little thing or such a right. Yes. And so it does require the deeper dive and the understanding yeah. of the yeah. nervous system and the, the brain science. What are the, do you, do you mind talking about lying? Lying comes up a lot for sure. folks. Yeah. What do you, what do you, and I have a number of parents saying like, I just don't, I trust is important in relationship. And this is a kid who will look right at me and lie about something. I just watched them yeah. do what, what goes on for kids and their nervous system and their brains when, when lying is a behavior in a, in a situation. Yes. I also, before I get to that, and yeah. I absolutely will love to talk with parents about the word trust because oh, 
I don't necessarily think it's an appropriate word to use with our kids, especially ones that have vulnerable nervous systems. It's really not about trust. It's about they don't have what they need to be successful in this moment. And so we either have to figure out how to help them, how to scaffold that up for them, or we have to change our expectations. Um, So lying is absolutely a behavior that, I mean, all parents are talking about lying, but, you know, the parents that we work with are like dealing with lying in a totally different (laughs) kind of way. It's either super chronic or it's about things, again, that just make absolutely no sense. I mean, the the example of like, I'm covered in blue frosting and holding a half-eaten blue cupcake, but I did not eat, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, what do you mean blue? Cu- no, I didn't do, what? It was sorry. Why would you accuse me of that? It was somebody else. You blame me for everything. Why do you hate me? Like, yeah, all of that. Totally. It goes stuff. all the way, like, so quickly. <laughs> exactly that. Why do you hate me? Mm-hmm. You want to kick me out of the family, whatever, you know, we go from, I was just wondering why you were covered in blue icing to, (laughs) you know, you're going to kick me out of the family or you hate me. So I'll say, first of all, I think I have found lying to be one of the last behaviors to trickle off, you know, as we increase felt safety, as we increase our kids' regulatory circuits you know, and their behavior starts to slowly, slowly improve, I find that the behavior of lying can be sticky. It will stick around. And some of that's because we're just human. Like there is an aspect to being human that comes along with um, lying. I All of us lie. Mm-hmm. So I always invite parents to consider that too. Like when was the last time you said something that wasn't well, totally true? <laughs> Probably don't have to go too far back. <laughs> in your memory banks to, to find that one. (laughs) You know, I think it's really easy to say lying is about not feeling safe. And I think in some ways that that's an accurate thing to say, what we have to then look at much, much more closely is like, what does that mean? Safe and what? Um, I see, I, I talk about behaviors through the lens of three things, regulation, connection, and felt safety. Well, for the most part, they're all, they do all intertwine with one another. Sometimes you can look at one as a bigger contributor to a challenging behavior. So let's look at the lying. Like, did the lying emerge during a time of intense dysregulation? Like their nervous system was really clearly very, very dysregulated. And then these just like wild things start coming out. (laughs) So then I look at that as like, well, that's a really great example of it being due to dysregulation. The more dysregulated we get, the younger and younger and younger we get, the more disconnected from reality we get. And actually the more we're pulling up our traumatic memory networks. Yeah. Yeah. So the line could be emerging from that. From all of those, yeah. Lying definitely could be emerging from a felt safety thing. Like if I'm going to lie to not get into trouble, that we can look at as a safety issue. And that's not necessarily 
even about that specific parent-child relationship, although it could be because most parents do react pretty negatively to being lied to. <laughs> I mean, I do. Yeah, yeah. And so even though I think my kid has lots of felt safety in our relationship, is it accurate to say that sometimes he is not confident? I'm not going to get really mad at him. And so instead he lies. Of course. Yeah. I mean, he's, we're all just human. And so I would call that still kind of a felt safety issue. Um, and then similarly to a dysregulation issue, sometimes the lie is so reflexive. It's like happens instantly. Like, did you even pause to think about what the real answer is? And before you just made <laughs> that up. Yeah. It is. Uh, yeah. Up? Yeah, so I see that as that kind of a regulation issue, as well as um, possibly a felt safety and possibly, you know, connection issue too. that like this neural pathway of this other answer was just locked and loaded. It wasn't really even related to to the real question, you know, Um, I think it's often too like. The, the, yeah, the automaticity of it, which is, and, and I always think like it, this may, if you're dealing with kids who've had trauma or attachment loss, that there, that there's an, a, an automatic protective element there, right? In their right. minds. And it's part of frontal lobe development. You and yeah. I can say, if you had thought about that for a second, you would realize right. Right. if you were two steps ahead of what you just said, you would know there's no way that works. But this whole concept of being two steps ahead is a very developmentally distinct one. Like that's why we wait for the frontal lobe to develop for to be our greatest, you know, hopeful selves about how that works. Because anticipation, looking for yeah. sequences and behaviors and patterns in in the environment, that's frontal lobe. And not only does that for develop sure. later, but it goes offline. When your kid is dysregulated, right? So, oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, the more dysregulated we are, the less into the future we can consider. Yeah. So, the lie could be an attempt to avoid just the very next micro moment of not even getting in trouble, but maybe just a look of disappointment, or you know, like, "Where's your backpack? I left it at school." And like, maybe for a parent, it would be like, "Oh, again," you know. Yeah. So maybe not tons of trouble. But just a fr- look of frustration or, or something. And that even that is too intolerable for the child. And so there's an instant lie to avoid that immediate b- disappointment. Disappointment, negative emotion. Because the in trouble for the lie is five seconds in the future as opposed to the disappointment one second yeah 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 right no the consequence is slightly delayed compared to the reaction you're going to get and the negative emotion you're going to get and uh i mean i think the idea too of the felt safety is really important in these situations because both are true we no matter how much we know we have days where we respond strongly to our kids behaviors where I'm not always regulated and something that wouldn't didn't bother me yesterday sent me you know through the roof today and so my it's fair to say sometimes my kid my kid may find my reactions unpredictable that's true I'm human and someday right like that's what happens but it's also true that 
felt safety sometimes doesn't have anything to do with current parenting situations, right? Absolutely. So both are true that sure, we're human. So we're by nature going to be a little bit inconsistent in what gets an emotional response from us and why. And also your child, depending on their history and trauma, whatever, may be bringing a whole subset of neuro programming and automatic responses that have nothing to do with you. And that's hard when you're stepping in to, to care for, to love, to parent uh, a child. And, and I, there's this weird thing that I've seen over time with folks who are in the world of foster adopt it's like six months just give me six months you know there's some magical sense that after six months well why why doesn't my child of course this is a safe home right like this concept of what is what is safe and this is a safe home and nobody's unsafe but it takes a really long time for the the brain and nervous system to to integrate that tell me a little bit more about what you mean with the phrase i love it with, with a vulnerable nervous systems what does that mean then our nervous system is really underneath everything right it is driving all things um you know heart rate respiration and of course behavior and it's responding to stress and then we have a stress response and stress to be clear is not bad Right. Like I was, I had some stress in making sure I was on time to our appointment today. Right. And it wasn't bad, but without it, who knows what I'd be doing right now? Like I would I be like, Oh, I'll get there when I get there. You know what I mean? Like stress helps us, you know, stay organized and meet our commitments and, and that kind of stuff. So now also stress can be bad. You know, stress can certainly come from, you know, bad things happening, but I just wanted to be really clear. Stress doesn't have to be bad. Mm-hmm. And our nervous system is constantly responding to stressors inside our bodies and the relationship and the environment, right? Like a stressor could be, man, I'm hungry, right? That's a stress on my nervous system or this thing didn't go exactly the way that I thought it was or shoot, it's raining outside and my patio cushions are still up, you know, like those are little stressors and, and, uh, you know, you can use a lot of different words. Some people say neurotypical, some people say resilient, Hmm. but in a typical stress response system, I have a stress response that seems to objectively match the stressor, (laughs) right? So like, oh shoot, my patio cushions are getting rained on. Ugh. I mean, I have enough of a stress response that like propels me to go out there and put them away. And then I can go back to work. The response matched the stressor, objectively speaking. I believe actually the response always matches, but objectively speaking. Okay. So in a vulnerable nervous system, what we're seeing is, you know, really continued patterns of essentially like the reaction doesn't seem to match what the average person would say the intensity of that yep. stressor was. Yep. Right. So it's like, 
maybe I see the patio kitchens getting rained on and I turn over my desk and break down the door to run outside. And then I'm upset about it for the rest of the day. Yell at our right? partners about why they shouldn't. Do- yeah. Yeah. All of that. <laughs> yeah. So ultimately, you know, the, the, the stress response seems much, much, much bigger than the stressor. So like when it's time for, um, dinner, and you're like literally on your way to dinner and your kid grabs a granola bar and you're like, whoa, 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 we're about to eat dinner. Like you can have a granola bar later. Totally reasonable thing yeah. to say. And your kid chucks a granola bar at your, says, at your head, says, I hate you and everything you cook sucks and I'm not eating. Okay. Big stress response. Yes. Teeny tiny stressor, which is, it is a stressor to be like, I wanted this thing and now I can't have it. Yep. Or my mom wants me to wait. Like that is stressful. Yep. But not chucking granola bars at people is stressful. Yes. Right. So that vulnerability then is for me describing these kids who have these really baffling behaviors. Like they don't match. Yep. At a glance. I like that. I just like that language around the, because yes, always looking for language that resonates with folks, but also just communicates the unexpectedness of it. Yes. Right? Not bad. Not right. Like it's confusing. It's unexpected. And if you're not able, I think key takeaways for parents when I work with them, if you're not able to pause your own respond like we match it's just like I talk about the secondary um realities of living in situations where it feels as if emotions go from small to big in an instant unexpectedly that it's natural we we match the energies of people around us our nervous systems are there to protect us from unexpected changes in energy and safety and if your child dysregulates regularly guess what? Your nervous system is absolutely going to be on higher alert and need extra attention yourself. So being able to regulate your own responses to your kids, which I'll ask you to speak about, but also the second piece for me is this, it does take a little bit of blocking out all the feedback you're getting from other people. (laughs) Oh yeah. You have really good, what I would call psychological boundaries. Yes. So let's talk about those two things. Talk first about um, what kinds of things have you seen help parents stay regulated when their kid is in big baffling behavior mode? Well, I think that understand. Okay. There's a couple of things, ways to look at this, which is how do we, one, kind of increase the stress resilience overall? so that they can tolerate baffling behaviors a little bit longer. And also, what do we do in the exact moment? Yeah. So that I could, you know, hang on to my regulation for like one more second, right? So like one plan is sort of proactive and one is sort of reactive. And so um, I really actually think understanding, I'm a big teacher of the science of behavior, that and there's a a concept in interpersonal neurobiology about the idea of coherence. Hmm. And if we can bring coherence to something, 
it can bring us towards integration and integration is good. I mean, it, it, <laughs> a more the more integrated you are, the bigger your window of tolerance is, the the more resilient your stress response is, the more you can stay really grounded in the here and now and connected to your values and, and all that kind of good stuff. So if we can bring coherence to the behavior, meaning can we make sense of these completely nonsensical behaviors that actually is in and of itself a step towards staying more regulated. Um, In my work, I teach parents about the owl and the watchdog and the possum brain and the owl brain is like the regulated brain. It's, um, a brain that can be self-reflective. It's the brain that can pause before responding. And so if we bring coherence to the behaviors, parents can get just a little bit stronger owl brain. They can stay more regulated in the face of, you know, dysregulation. And then I think parents legitimately need to have really good ideas about what to do when this behavior is happening and they need to feel confident that they have some ideas. And I also think they need to understand what the behavior really is. So they know they have a better idea of what tool to use. I mean, so often the parents we work with get really stuck in this like behavior whack-a-mole game, right? They're just like throwing tools at, you know, the proverbial spaghetti at the wall, which makes perfect sense for a whole lot of reasons not the least of which is that professionals are constantly giving contradicting advice. Yeah. And so that's why I'm such a big proponent of like, let's understand why this is happening so you can pull a tool out that actually addresses the real problem. I mean, just like we said with lying, I have, when someone says, what do I do about lying? I'm like, I have no idea. Like we need to get way underneath, like the, the behavior is just to cure a clue. Yeah. I need to look at much more. And equipping these things, equipping parents with these things, you know, increases their confidence, increases their felt sense that like they know what they're doing, increases the sense of like, oh, this is really hard, but I think I could handle it. And and that's, and that's, I love that we're talking about this because that's what people say too. Like what, yeah, how do you, what tips and people are expecting you to say like, put your, you know, right finger to your earlobe and like, yeah. It, it, but the but it does start with the understanding that this is yeah. a regulatory system thing for both of you and the brain is doing what it's supposed to do and yes. your nervous systems are doing what it's supposed to do. And one of the things that my listeners will have heard me say a million times and I can't say 20 million more is the story we tell ourselves about our kids' behavior completely informs how we respond in the moment. Exactly. And the the same is true for our kids. The story they're telling themselves about what's happening completely informs their behavior. It's happening in them. Very little actually to do with us, but it takes us off track a little bit. I mean, I think parents do want, of course they do. I do too. Like the tool. Yeah. And we're desperate for like, maybe this next professional will have the magic answer. And I think some of that is our fault as the professionals. Mm -hmm. Like we're in a way sort of perpetuating that belief that we're the experts and we have the answers. And so I realize it's a little ironic for me to be talking about that because this is my job. But part (laughs) of what I work so hard to do is to 
to, you know, I, I tell parents like, you're the expert in your child. I will never know them. Yeah. I happen to know a lot about the brain. So, and you don't have time for that. So yeah. let me give you what I've learned so that you can continue to be your child's expert as opposed to me giving you a tool that still leaves that parent kind of at the mercy of having a professional to tell them what to do. I don't want that. I want parents to, you know, be their, their child's own expert. So I get that parents want a tool, but what I usually say to parents, I mean, by the time parents come to me, I'm not people's first stop. Yeah. You know, when my book comes out, it won't be the first parenting book they've ever read. So what I usually tell parents, I was like, listen, if there was a tool that was going to fix this behavior, you would have found it by now. Yeah. Like you are resourceful enough. There's enough parenting experts on Instagram. Like if that tool existed, you would have found it by now. I am positive of that. It's just that it doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. It's a web of, yeah. Web of understanding, web of relational and connection pieces belief that it can't it's it's hope yeah (laughs) it's a belief that it can get better but it isn't gonna change overnight and that connection and felt safety are the longer term goals i think in our own nerve right because a lot of many parents who are experiencing baffling behaviors at home. I mean, it does make us nervous. We feel out of control. We feel ineffective. You know, like in public, it's embarrassing because we look out of control and ineffective. In private, we're still feeling out of control and ineffective. And so Uh that what happens is we clench, we tighten, we our nervous system kicks in and says, "Uh uh-oh, there's something going on here. Let me ramp up, you know, and then kids respond to that right they can feel that we're tense and and it just it really does take this belief that the magic cure is not one sentence or consequence away that this that this is a process of reflection and understanding and just trying to figure out how to keep both of you regulated so that the frontal lobe can come back online and that's when you shape the behavior that's when you have your teachable you're not shaping behavior through promised slash threatened consequences with our kids you're unfortunately not it would be easier for sure (laughs) um it'd be quicker but unfortunately not yeah and what you said about um you know we have to pay attention to what are we bringing to the interaction and part of you know that like feeling embarrassed that's something we're bringing you know that's rooted in something and so I'll I'll invite parents to really explore like we're not in control of anybody else's behavior so why would somebody else's behavior embarrass you okay let's dig into that like something about like there's these cultural beliefs that good parents are in control of their kids or, you know, kids who have been raised well act a certain way. Or compliant, right? Like compliance right. is. Right. Yeah. Right. 
Um, so the, and then, and then even underneath that, there's this belief that like, it's really important that my family look good to outsiders. Like the, the being judged by other people is so intolerable to me because I can't tolerate what it's like to be judged. And so I, um, want to work with parents to like really explore those very valid feelings. Yeah. And what is that really about? Because it's not actually really about your kid at all, right? Like it's about these cultural ideals that good parents have good kids. And also, what does that even mean? Right. Like, what does it mean to be a good parent? What does it mean to be a good kid? Who gets to decide that? I mean, there's so much that goes and into in a way, that. Right? Like being a good parent in the supermarket on Tuesday is really different from being a good parent in the broadest sense of the exactly. term. Right? Like, what does that look like? I love that. Like, and just, yes. Like what is driving the, the clenching that happens for parents? Cause I also think, right. When, when parents are feeling unsure how to respond to behaviors, either cause they're really big or they're really frequent, right. Even if they're not huge behaviors, they're just super right. frequently not doing what yeah. one would expect would happen that whether it's other professionals who mean well, but, but yes, I also like, I had a big shift yeah. in my professional world when I started to understand the nervous and sensory, like the brain science and the yeah. nervous and sensory systems more in depth. And, and I think, you know, you're either getting mixed messages from folks about what to do or not do, or you're also getting the sense that oftentimes it can look as if regulating or working to regulate a child is rewarding them. Sure. And this yeah. is one of the biggest things. So if you're in the supermarket on Tuesday and your kids throw and you're, you know, massaging their shoulders or you're giving them something to hold or they're getting some gum to chew to calm down mm -hmm. or like mm -hmm. they're getting mm -hmm. the, the tricks that you have learned to regulate your child when they start to dysregulate right. and you can just you can feel it you can see it and sometimes you actually hear it that sure. people are like mm -hmm. well mm -hmm. no wonder it's sort of like this audience assumption that that your child is behaving badly because of what you are doing as a parent, rather than recognizing that parent may very well be doing what they're doing because they know there's a regulatory oh, sure. piece. Right. So that psychological boundary around like both are circles of folks who are closer, who mean, well, I know you mean well, and this is, this is, this is my, you know, this is what works in our lane. This is, you know, slight, we're on a slightly different path or yeah, you know, I'm so glad that works for you. Right. <laughs> that's awesome yeah. yeah you know and 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 you have to be able to take a leap of faith and kind of try some of these things and really learn about the brain and that's why the stuff that you're doing robin is so great because it makes i mean like i when i and i've also said this when i started hearing about the neuroscience stuff i it, in school i was like yanarama like whatever uh -huh. i don't you know, I'm a, I'm an ecology person. I'm a culture. Uh -huh. I'm a relationship yeah. person. Right. Uh -huh. And I am, I was like, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And it is, it literally defines what I do now because yeah. 
there's so much to the relational pieces and the neuroscience, but it's, it's awesome that you're doing what you're doing, translating that because yeah, parents don't have time to do the training stuff that we did. And, and you just want to find that place where there's the intersection of the theory and the application for parents, right? Like, so understanding behavior is super important. And then with that, you start to learn what kinds of tips or tricks regulate your child to allow you to do the teachable moments things later. But yeah. it, it does take a thick, does takes thick skin. It takes exploring what it feels like to be judged as a parent. And can you tolerate that while you stay connected to your kid and help them regulate? Yeah. I think one of the unexpected delights of the work that I do is the being able to apply everything I teach parents about their kids, eventually they start to, you know, apply all the information to themselves and to <laughs> others. And so I'm constantly talking about, you know, the nervous system being in protection mode or connection mode. And I'm always talking about, you know, where are we on our, in our owl watchdog or possum brain, there's different levels of owls and, or I mean, different levels of watchdogs and different levels of, of possums, blah, blah. So, before we can respond to our kids' behavior with something that's going to be useful, we have to have some of our own owl brain on. Mm -hmm. And otherwise, we're just reacting and we're responding defensively. So one of the best paths towards growing our own owl brain is truckloads of self-compassion. Self-compassion is the number mm -hmm. one thing that helps shift the nervous system. And so as I help parents learn about their kids' behaviors, they start to be able to apply all that information to themselves. So like all the behaviors that they've been embarrassed about. Mm -hmm. I, you know, parents will tell me all the time, I know all this information, but I still can't do it. That must mean there's something wrong with it. It's like, no, it, is, it means you're perfectly human and your owl brain's flying away too fast, just like your kids. And then the next step is we can apply that information to other people. So like the people at the grocery store who are, who are judging you, what's happening is that their owl brain is flying away because it's uncomfortable to watch this. And the nervous system is contagious. So this, you know, tantruming child is causing the other adults in the grocery store's nervous system to flip. And all of us, get more controlling yeah. when our nervous system is flipped into this protection mode. And that's a way, you know, like judging another parent is an attempt to control them as a controlling behavior. And so the more and more we understand and learn all this, the more I find parents really sinking into the truth that like nothing about what this other person thinks is relevant in any way, shape, or form. It's not even about you. They're just uncomfortable. And then they're doing something weird because they're uncomfortable. Just like our kids do weird things when they're dysregulated. And honestly, just like I do, like yeah. I do plenty of really weird things when I am yeah. dysregulated. And so the more that that's one of my most favorite things is that there's this kind of one stream of science to learn. And then it's like infinitely, applicable in all these different ways. And if we can especially bring that back to ourselves, yeah. that increases our self-compassion and self-compassion is 
definitely like truly neurobiologically the most potent yeah. neurobiological experience that promotes healing of the stress response system. Perfect. And that is a great place to think about. I mean, we, you and I could definitely, it's like, oh my gosh, I could talk for <laughs> days and days. <laughs> and I, but I love that because it, 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 yeah, you can't, you can't do this. You can't stay regulated. You can't be a pitcher who has things to pour into others if you're not being gentle with yourself about the fact oh, that, yeah. again, it makes perfect sense that your nervous system becomes, you know, I always say, I'm like, you know what? I'm like, you have an overachieving nervous system. Yeah. <laughs> like, like a car alarm in the wind. Like, guess what? You are on alert all the time. And, yeah. and it makes sense. It's like adaptive for you to have been given what's happening in your home. So how do we help you feel less lonely, less responsive to judgment, more hopeful and, and you know, really able to stay in the process of learning and loving kids with tricky behavior. So um, we'll link stuff in the in the episode to how folks can find your groups and uh, the book and for the clinicians that are listening to to learn more about the programs. You've put a lot of time and energy into sort of we you know, we jumped around and took little snippets. But the 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 idea that your programs are set out in a in a way that that comes from your experience of what makes sense for folks to learn when. So we were happy to point um, folks to your stuff. And I love following what you're doing. Excited for your, for your book launch coming up later this month. So thanks Thank for Thank you. Being here it's today. been so fun to connect and chat. Yay. All right. Here's to, to more of that whenever we both <laughs> can exactly. find the time to do that. Thank you so much for being here. All right. Well, thanks for listening today. Just a quick note here at the end to say I am so glad you joined and I hope you are too. And if you'd like to connect with me more, come take a look at my website, www.drlaraanderson.com. There you can join my newsletter, keep in touch and find out what is in the works. You can also join me for coffee and conversation uh, and Facebook at Common Cord Psychology Services. So check me out those places and I look forward to further connection. I'm glad you were here today.